It's said that Thomas Jefferson wrote nearly 20,000 letters in his lifetime. Letters. I can't even imagine. Jefferson himself once said, from sunrise to one or two o'clock in the afternoon, I am drudging at the writing table. So I guess the original drudge report. I'm drudging at the writing table. He he made a, a business, a practice of letter writing. In the pre-digital era, letter writing was a big deal. Letter writing was how things were communicated. You understand that, you know that. But no one took it more seriously than the Greeks and the Romans. I mean, they truly took letter writing to an art form. In fact, Gordon Fee wrote, formal schooling would have included instruction in letter writing. Two manuals for such instruction are still in existence, the earliest from the 2nd century B.C., and it lists and offers 21 different types, different kinds of letters, the first of which was the friendly type. And Cicero was quoted as saying this was the reason for the invention of letter writing in the first place was friendship letters, friendship communication. What Jefferson called drudging at the writing table, the Apostle Paul would consider to be no drudgery at all. And so we have his letters. Philippians is Paul's letter, as we talked about Sunday, to his beloved friends. And that's how you need to read it. Don't read it as as a doctrinal dissertation, although as we talked about, there is doctrine in here. Sound, deep, profound doctrine. But don't read it that way. Read it as a letter from a friend to his dear friends, a letter that is overflowing with joy. Joy in the relationship. And again, as we learned on Sunday, it was written in that artless style of the Greek friendship or family letters. Casual, off-handed, relaxed, impromptu, and so Paul begins, Paul and Timothy, doulos of Christ Jesus. Bond servants. Doulos, the Greek word for the lowest form of slave, the lowest form of servant, indentured servitude. And he says that's all we are. There is no apostle, no appointed, no authorization, just servants. And as Paul begins this letter, he's with Timothy, clearly. Now, Timothy's not the co-author. In fact, if you're reading in the Greek, you'd see Timothy's there in the third person. And so there's some distance there, but he's with Paul, and Paul specifically names him. He probably is Paul's amanuensis, his secretary, the one jotting down what Paul's telling him to write. But Timothy was also very well known in the Philippian fellowship. He was a friend too. Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, remember the four of them in Acts 16, came to Philippi at the first met Lydia and and the ladies by the riverside, ultimately would meet the Philippian jailer, two families there, and some slaves and some prisoners and a few women, and they collected and they became the first living room church there in Philippi. So they all knew Timothy, and he's with Paul, and he goes on and says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might note in the first two verses, Paul has already named Jesus three times. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It is always about Jesus where the Apostle Paul is concerned. He doesn't write without talking about Jesus. He gets right to the point. Immediately, bondservants of Jesus, to the saints in Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But pay attention to his use of the word saints. 
to all the saints in Christ Jesus. And he includes overseers. That would be episkopos, where we get our word episcopalian, and it means an overseer or a bishop. He says, and the deacons, the diakonos, which is just another word for servants. But what that tells us is even at this point, around 62 A.D., that already there's a degree of organization in the local fellowships, in the local churches. They have overseers, they have deacons, they have these offices functioning in the organization of the church. Though the church remains a family, it remains a bond of of deep friendship. And so we're going to talk about that. We'll get into the overseers and the deacons and the responsibilities and rules when we get into the pastoral epistles of uh, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, but but not, not so soon. We'll wait on that one. But Moses is the first here to do it. David would quickly follow suit, picking it up, as we will see throughout the Psalms. But God's holy people are referred to in the Bible as saints. This is not a New Testament word, it's a Hebrew designation that is then transliterated into the Greek. Exodus 19, verse 6, the Lord says through Moses, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Kadosh Goyi. A holy nation. And these are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. God says this to Moses. Moses says it to Israel. Israel, guess what? You are now saints. My holy ones. David, in Psalm 16, verse 3, says, As for the saints, Kadosh, who are on the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. God delights in His holy people. Remarkable, majestic ones. Psalm 34, verse 9 says, Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for to those who fear Him there is no want. But as Israel were called saints, so now the church is being called saints, people of God. And it's very simply holy ones, set apart. These are the set apart ones of God. A nation of holy priests, majestic ones, It doesn't often sound like us. No offense. But I don't normally think of myself as majestic or priestly. And yet God calls me, calls you, saints. The saint is first produced by God. Understand that we would not be saints if He didn't call us saints. The only reason we're saints is because He has decided to call us such. And so He, through the blood of Jesus at Calvary, on the cross, purifies us so that we might be called saints. And rightly so. But He produces sainthood, and then we practice it. And that's how it works. Sometimes people get that backwards. They think we produce sainthood by our practice. No, it's produced in us by God through the blood of Christ. And then we turn around and then practice it. And we need the practice. After all, it's the saints who will come riding in. They don't come marching in, by the way. They come riding in, the Bible is clear, with Jesus in His glorious appearing to establish His kingdom. Revelation 19.14 And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, they are following Him on white horses. And so we follow Him in His glorious return. After the rapture of the church had already taken place seven years before, Now at the end of the tribulation period, as the Lord returns, we come with Him. 2 Thessalonians 1.10 says, He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. And so saints, he says, saints in Christ Jesus and the overseers and deacons, which indicates that they are saints as well. 
And he continues in verse 3 and says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, my kidneys, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. I was telling some of our staff today, I love when when all the P's are in one place. You know, all the points are already given to us. They're right there in Scripture. Four sweet peas planted and produced at Philippi. Joyful prayer, joyful participation, joyful partaking, joyful perfection. And then on Sunday we had a joyful potluck. Five peas. How do you know that a church is going to grow? Paul comes into Philippi, again with his compadres, plants the gospel, begins to teach... Casts out a demon, goes to prison, gets out of prison, and is asked to leave town. So he's not there a very long period of time. How could you know that the church was going to survive? Well, how did we know here? When things first got rolling here at the bridge, and 15 to 20 people showed up, how did we know that it would ultimately become a viable fellowship of Christians able to build a building. Not that that's important. It's not, but but amazing that God did that. How did we know that we were going to have influence in different places in the world through missions? How did we know people would be reached? Lives would be saved? How did we know? I can tell you from the beginning, before our first Bible study, I knew I knew there would be a church here. And people would ask me, how do you know this is going to work? I I just know. But that's not to say that there weren't times of doubt. And I've actually shared this before, but maybe you haven't heard this. During the first year especially, there were many times where the enemy came hard against us, where challenges were there, where things were said that were not true, hurtful things were said that were not fair, And yet we just kept kind of plugging away under the radar. I loved being in the barn because we were so under the radar. You know, people are like, how do we know where your church is? Ah, just good luck. (laughs) But during that year, on occasion, there were difficult times. Never doubts, but difficult times. And there was a Wednesday night, I was walking down to the barn. It was a season where everybody who had been coming on Wednesday, once we started Sunday services, everybody, for the most part, shifted to Sunday, not realizing my intention that we'd do both. That I I was saying, hey, twice a week is a great idea. Thank you for being here tonight. But but many just kind of shifted, oh, well, we're doing no longer Wednesday, we'll go to Sunday. And so there was a season where we would have five to ten people showing up on a Wednesday night. And I'm walking down to the band. I had studied hard. And I'm thinking, Lord, am I putting too much energy and too much effort into this for a Wednesday night? I don't know. Lord, should we keep doing this? And, and I'm walking down and, and I was getting, I was depressing myself. You know how you do that? You start talking and you find yourself going down and down and down. We're really good at talking ourselves into sorrow. And I'm, I'm thinking this way and I finally just stopped. I stopped at the gate between my property and the Gilmore's property. And I remember putting my hand on the gate and going, God, I need some encouragement. Could you send me a word tonight 
something, just encourage me tonight. Let me know that this is you and let me know that you've got this. And just to keep doing what we're doing. And then I walked through the gate and I got there and began to greet people and, and then we got into our time of worship which always encourages and then we opened up the Word and began studying. I don't know where we were, somewhere in Genesis sojourning and that was encouraging. And by the time the evening was done, I was light on my feet. And I was walking out of the barn and I had completely forgotten that I had asked God specifically, can you give me some encouragement? Until I got to the door of the barn and a couple was there and... A lady older than myself who I had not seen before, she and her husband were visiting that night. I think I saw them one time after that and then never again. And she said to me, I don't normally do this, but I think I have a word from the Lord for you. And she said, I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And instantly I remembered asking for some encouragement. In that moment I remembered, God, you've just answered my prayer. I love when that happens. It's not all the time. You know, usually answer to prayer, we figure it out like two years later. Oh, he did answer that. <laughs> but in the moment to realize, and I was so encouraged, and I walked home just going, thank you, Jesus, praise the Lord, and it became my life verse ever since. I am confident of this. That he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. You don't have to worry about it. He's at work. Jesus said, I will build my church. So I took that very personally. And as I said, it's a life verse. It's painted on a wooden plaque above my desk in my office. And I read it daily. But I realize that while that verse is often used by many of us as a verse of personal encouragement... It wasn't written as a verse of personal encouragement. It was written as a verse of corporate encouragement. Paul is talking to Philippi. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. You might say, well, is Philippi even still there? Is that church there? It's beside the point. Because what happened in Philippi has become part of the entire church and has been perfecting all of us and will until the day of Christ Jesus. So, prophecy fulfilled. But what's exciting is to look around and to know here at the bridge, you know what? He is perfecting a work. And whether this particular fellowship is here on the day that Jesus calls us home, and I fully expect it to be because I'm thinking next week. But whether it's here or not is beside the point. What He is doing in us and through us and and together is of kingdom import. Sometimes that's hard to see in Anacortes or on Whidbey Island in Oak Harbor. In our small towns, we're like, what are we really doing that's of that big a deal? You are involved in the kingdom if you're one strand of the greater web of the tapestry that God is developing. He's perfecting it all. And we're not going to fully see that until we get there. On the day of Christ Jesus. Paul here is saying, hey Philippi, be encouraged, friends. He's going to finish what he started. Paul's not there, hadn't been there, you know, for, well, he he may have visited once or twice, but it's been 10 to 12 years now. And yet, it wasn't dependent upon Paul to make that church go and grow. We'll see with Thessalonica, the next church, the next place he heads down to, straight from Philippi. He and Silas go down there, they plant a church there, and they're gone after three Sabbaths. And yet, Thessalonica had a vibrant church that grew 
Because the Lord plants and the Lord, He grows. He makes it happen. Jesus is called, Hebrews chapter 12, the author and the finisher of our faith. Now, I've been an author of many different works, but I've finished very few. You know, you start writing, you know, I'm going to make my living as a novelist. And you write like one great chapter. And then life happens. How many one great chapters do I have? I don't even know. But Jesus is not only author, He is finisher. He does the whole thing. He gets the job done. And He will perfect the good work that He began in you personally and in our fellowship corporately. Verse 9 going on. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment, so that you may approve of the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is one of what I call the great prison prayers of Paul. Praying from his incarceration now. And he jots it down. I am praying this for you, Philippi. Remember, he had a couple of beautiful, profound prayers that he prayed for Ephesus. And now he's praying this for Philippi. And what does he pray for them? He prays for the love of Philippi. I pray. Oh, I pray that your love may abound still more and more. And it's interesting how he goes on to pray because what Paul describes here is not wishy-washy, squishy-squashy love. It's not the kind of love that our culture talks about. It's not the feelings-based love that everybody thinks that's what love really is. No. He, He describes this real love as defined by moral and ethical understanding. I mean, how often do you see that in a Hallmark card? May your love abound in moral excellence. But see, that's what you see in Scripture. Because love is not a feeling. Love is so much more than that. God Himself is love. Love is born of the righteousness of God. And look at the words that Paul uses. Knowledge, discernment, excellence, Sincerity, blamelessness, these are the things that define or are characteristic of love. And only in the love of God do we find moral excellence. See, in the love of mankind, which is more the Greek word eros, more the lust of mankind, we do not see moral excellence. Excellent is the word diaphero. Diaphero literally means to differentiate. So the concept of something that is excellent is something that is differentiated from something else. Something that is uh, seen as more than or better than. It's in the same way that saint or holy one means to be set apart. So excellent, diaphero, means to differentiate between what is right and what is wrong. What is good and what is bad? What is perfect and what is flawed? It's a differentiation. And note this, over in chapter 4, verse 8, listen to how Paul describes the same thing. He says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, 
whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Man, that is a great verse just for practical Christian living. If it fits into that category, purity and loveliness and rightness and honor and repute and, and, and excellence, praiseworthiness, these are the things to think about. If it doesn't fit there, don't waste your time. Yeah, but I want love. Yeah, it's right there. It is found in moral excellence, that differentiation. These things that he describes here in 4 verse 8, these abound in real love. And where these things are lacking or absent, real love is not there. Those who would try to say, no, you love this way or you love that way. Hey, if it's impure, it's not love. If it's ugly, if it's of ill repute, if it's not praiseworthy, it's not love. Love is seen in these things, in moral excellence. Go back to chapter 1. And again, looking at these words between verses 9 and 11, knowledge and discernment. Knowledge and discernment? Yeah, because true love, real love, seeks understanding. Real love seeks to be known. See, that's why we see God is love, because He seeks to be known. He wants to make Himself known to us. That we might understand Him, have knowledge of Him. Well, what about sincerity? Hey, love is genuine. Love really is sincere. Love doesn't function from selfish motive. Love says, what's best for you? That's what I want to do. And if I'm messing it up, I'm going to be honest about that and sincere. Here's my struggle. And be open. Blamelessness? How is that love? Well, because love doesn't look to blame other people. Love doesn't even consider blame. Man, how much blame do we see in the news cycles today? Anything bad happens and someone has to be blamed for it. Whose head is going to roll for this problem, this issue? It's always the blame game. Love doesn't blame. How about excellence? Well, love, love differentiates. True love differentiates between what is good and what is not. What is pure and what is impure. True love seeks for the best. And of course, John said in 1 John 4.16, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. And that's love. Paul says, I I pray this for you. Philippi, my friends, I pray for this kind of love to abound in you, this knowledge love and this discernment love. This excellent, really excellent love filled with the fruit of righteousness through Jesus Christ. But note he says that these things may abound more and more until, at the end of verse 10, until the day of Christ. He's now said that twice. The day of Christ. The day of Christ. What is the day of Christ exactly? When is that? What is that specifically referring to? You know, when you're studying through the Scriptures... Please understand that everything is intentional. That phrases and words and depictions are not just kind of thrown out there loosely. I I was talking with my son earlier today. We were talking about Philippians. And I was just saying, you know, what's amazing to me is when you start to study these, when you start to go through the the scriptural books, Holy Spirit-inspired books, it's unbelievable how intentional every single thing in them is. 
It's intentionally the day of Christ. You see, there's also the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord, that's a different day. A first term by Joel the prophet, about 840 B.C. or so. And it is specifically the time of Jacob's distress. Jeremiah 30, verse 7. That's the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. A day of deep darkness. A day of thick clouds and deep darkness. A day of the wrath of God being poured out. We call it the tribulation. And Jesus referred to it. The book of Revelation very clearly delineates a seven year period of time. From the signing of a, of a covenant by Israel with the Antichrist, it starts to roll seven years until it ends. And in it, the wrath of the Lamb is poured out first three and a half years. Last three and a half years, the wrath of God in full is poured out. It is the day of the Lord. And it's a day in that it begins at one point and continues like one long day, a period of time. The day of the Lord. There's also in the Scriptures the day of God. It's not the day of the Lord and it's not the day of Christ. It's the day of God. And it speaks very specifically of when God comes to judge. We see it twice. Two, I guess you could say, days of God. Revelation 16, 14 says the spirits of demons performing signs go out to the kings of the whole earth and gather them together for the great war of the great day of God, the Almighty. And that is Armageddon. So Armageddon would be the first of two days of God, a day of judgment. In fact, that's where it's said that Jesus will come down. God will come down to the valley of decision, the valley of Jehoshaphat, to enter into judgment with the world. Where Matthew 5 talks about the fact that the nations will be judged. That's the day of God. The day of the Lord leading up to that. The day of God, that day of judgment on Armageddon. And then again, again a thousand years later. Another day of God. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 12 says we are looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. And that's talking about what happens at the great throne judgment of Revelation 20. That's after the thousand year millennial kingdom. Okay, Rick, you've totally lost me on the timeline here. Well, open the book of Revelation. Let's just start with chapter 1 and go through it. I'm kidding. The timeline is very simple. There is the day of the Lord that is that seven year period of tribulation. There is the day of God which happens at the end of that. And then a thousand year reign of Jesus. And at the end of that there is another day of God. Both of those days of God, judgment days. Which one is the day of Christ? It's the rapture of the church. The day of Christ happens prior to that tribulation period. Well, how do you know that, Rick? Well, he keeps referencing the day of Christ. He who began a good work and you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, verse 6. And he prays that our love will abound more and more to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. We are leading up to that day. 1 Thessalonians Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord the day of Christ. Right? (laughs) The rapture of the church. It's when we go home, gang. Because the tribulation is not for the church. We are not destined for wrath, but for salvation. The day of Christ, followed by the day of the Lord, followed by the day of God. 
We're told in 1 Corinthians 15.52, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we, who are not dead, in that moment, at that time, will be changed. Day of Christ. And He is perfecting His work in you until the day of Christ. Why? Because on the day of Christ, you're instantly glorified. The perfect work is done. Now, He's already finished everything that needed to be done, but He is finishing us, working in us, saints of God. The day of Christ is your target date. The day of Christ. Now, suddenly, in the letter, Paul shifts gears. He prays this prayer, I want you to love to abound. And as is typical of a friendship letter, he changes direction completely. He shifts gears from theological to very personal. He says in verse 12, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has been or has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. This is what's going on in Rome, my friends. Paul, at the same time, is saying, don't worry about me because this is good stuff happening here. Whatever you're hearing there, oh, Paul's in chains, Paul's in prison. Yeah, in prison for the cause of Christ. And it's all good and it's going well. These are the prison letters, right? Three times in Philemon, three times in Colossians, three times in Ephesians, and four times in Philippians, Paul specifically refers to the circumstances of his imprisonment, of the fact that he was in chains. But he sees it as a blessing. Here he tells his friends in Philippi, it is for the greater progress of the gospel. Man, if it'll make the gospel go forward, my chains are worth it. Throw me into a dungeon. If I know by being thrown into the dungeon, it's going to increase the gospel. Now don't throw me into a dungeon just to waste time. You know, and don't let me get thrown into prison because I did something stupid. But if it's for Jesus' sake, and if it increases the gospel, bring it on. This is the attitude, the mentality of Paul. He says in Ephesians 6.20, I am an ambassador in chains. Remember that? And he told the people, pray that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And that blows my mind that Paul doesn't say, pray that I can get out. Pray that I can be set free from this position, from this place. Pray that I can run in the fields again. (laughs) Pray that I can be free. No. Pray that in my imprisonment, I will speak boldly. That right here, right now, I will be of use to God. Think about it. How in the world could anyone else gain access to the entire Praetorian Guard? Not only does Paul have access to them, he has access to them for 12-hour shifts 24-7. Chained up to him, they can't do a thing about what Paul's doing. So he's writing letters and he's talking to Timothy and he's sharing the gospel with anyone who will visit. And when no one's there in the house, can you imagine what Paul is doing with the Praetorian Guard? Do you know Jesus? I don't really want to talk about Jesus. Well, it seems to me like you don't have much of a choice. So who's the real prisoner here, right? The guards are chained to Paul. 
And now, and he's able to say, the entire Praetorian Guard is talking about it. I shared this when we were studying this at the time. That You know, I really think there must have been some who were coming to faith who were like, you know what, I'll take your shift. You're working, yo, you're going to work with Paul tomorrow. Can I take your shift? I'll be there. And there were probably some others going, yeah, take it, because I am sick and tired of this Bible beater. You know, every time I turn around, it's Jesus this, Jesus that. But he had them talking and thinking and getting saved. I mean, that's just remarkable. But that's what happens when you know that you are in imprisonment for the cause of Christ. And that's not what he said. In fact, he said more than that. If you look back at verse 13, and you might do this. I line through every now and then certain words in the Bible. I know that's shocking. But I will take a black pen and line through words and remove them from my Bible. Rick, why would you do that if they're italicized? Because in the NASB and the King James and some other translations, if it's italicized, the translator stuck them in there to try and give it some flow. But they're not original language. Sometimes they're inferred, so you want to be careful. Don't just go through and, and scratch all the italics, because sometimes that's what the word implies. But that's not what, what Paul said here. He does not say, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. What does he say? So that my imprisonment in Christo is well known. Literally, my imprisonment in Christ, period. It's not for the cause of Christ. It's my imprisonment in Christ. And that is how saints reach the world. Get this. This is so important. And I'm actually repeating something I said when we studied an earlier epistle. This is how we reach the world. We are to be set apart, saints, as prisoners of, by, and for Jesus. I am literally in imprisonment in Christ. I am chained up to Jesus. I'm like the Praetorian guard chained to Paul. I got no option. I got to go where Jesus goes. I got to hear what Jesus says. I got to follow where Jesus leads. I am in imprisonment in Christo, shackled to my Savior. But somebody hear that and go, oh, I don't like that. That doesn't sound very free. You will never be more free than when you are in imprisonment in Christ. When you are chained up to Him. And Bible students, think about this. Apply this in real life right now. What's your prison? Because our tendency in humanity is to want to get out. Chained to a desk. Or bound to a health issue. Or shackled in a difficult marriage. And our American opinion is, I have to be free, I've got to get out. So we quit the job. So we fight the health issue. Not saying you shouldn't. So we quit the marriage. Because we do not like being restrained by circumstances beyond our control. Paul was. And Paul was able to say, even being in literal prison is for Christ. I'm in in chains for Christ. So if you're in a job that's difficult, guess what? Those are your chains for Christ. Instead of trying so hard to get out, how about praying that God would give you boldness for the gospel within? How about in the difficult marriage, you decide, I'm going to start loving my spouse like I never have, though they never return any of my love. I'm going to do it anyway, because that's going to honor God and may save somebody here. 
I will stay in my prison, Lord, for the sake of the gospel. That's the attitude of a saint who is imprisoned in Christ. Back in Romans 6, Paul talked about this. He said in verse 16, Do you not know when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience? You are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, resulting in death, or of obedience, resulting in righteousness. Paul says it's one or the other. You are either a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness. If you're a slave of sin, you're going to die that way. If you're a slave of righteousness, however, that is true freedom. He says in Romans 6.18, Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So instead of praying for release, we never see Paul do that. The only thing Paul ever prayed that he might be released from was the thorn in his flesh. He prayed it three times, and all three times God said, My grace is sufficient for you. And finally Paul got it and shut up. And he stopped praying, even for release from the pain in his side. And began saying, all right, it's God's grace and His grace is enough. Imprisoned in Christo. So instead of praying for release, saints, how about praying for righteousness? Right where you are. Right in what you're doing. Right here, right now. We just sang in the song, for me to live as Christ. What's that line, Rachel? uh, It's about being in the same place. You've put me in this place. This is the place you chose for me. Did you sing that tonight? I didn't hear anybody saying, I hate the place you chose for me. I hate the place you chose for me. Get me out, you know. This is the place. So stop for a moment and instead of railing against it, say, Lord, did you chain me here? Did you put these shackles on me? Is this for the gospel? Perhaps I can serve right here. Don't seek release. Seek righteousness. God may release you. God released Paul. Ultimately, Paul got out of that prison, would go on to preach the gospel some more before he was recaptured, retried, and beheaded. All for the sake of Christ. Because wherever Paul went, he was imprisoned in Christo. Well, verse 15, continuing on, he says... Now, some to be sure, and I was talking about conditions still in Rome, so watch this. Some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. Can't imagine somebody doing that. But some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Now stop right there. This is amazing. It's almost unthinkable. This is the kind of stuff, what Paul describes here, this is the kind of stuff that the world looks at in the church and goes, you guys are no better than we are. You're just as messed up. To which I reply, I know. But we need Jesus and we know we need Him. I think that's really the big difference between the saint and the sinner. Saint just knows you need Jesus. Sinner hasn't figured that out yet. The saint is still capable of sin, but is living in and forgiven by Jesus, whereas the sinner is also capable of sin, but doesn't realize that Jesus is there with arms open wide. So we have here this description, some and some others, some preaching Christ from envy and strife and selfish ambition. 
and others preaching Christ out of pure motives. Paul is talking about what I think we have all seen. And let's just call it what it is. Some churches are global for the gospel, will do anything for the sake of Christ, are not concerned about themselves, but are so outwardly focused, they're just doing it out of the right pure motives. We want to get the gospel out. Some churches are that way. And some churches are territorial for themselves. They are into empire building rather than kingdom building. They want the world to see them get bigger and bigger. They want their name plastered everywhere they can. And we see both within the body of Christ. It's just reality. And you know what? It used to really bug me. It doesn't anymore. I don't mind so much. I happen to know that while saints are produced by God through Jesus, sainthood is practiced by us with Jesus, but that doesn't mean it always will be. Some churches do not practice sainthood. I lay that at the feet of leadership, primarily. Because as leadership goes, so tends to go the church. But some don't practice sainthood. I hated practicing the cello. Man, fourth grade. And my mom, classical violinist, tells my brother and me we can both start playing an instrument. Well, I'm thinking electric guitar, thinking maybe drums, you know, something cool. And she says, how about the cello? And I'm like, the cello? I mean, it rhymed with jello, so for a fourth grader, that was good. But I hated practicing, and I dragged that thing up and down my hill to school barefoot in the snow every day, trying in Southern California, right? But I did. We had a large hill in our house at the top of the hill, and I had to carry that cello up the hill every day coming home from school. Big old thing, and I hated that. But more than carrying it, I hated practicing it. And ultimately the day came when I finally set it down and picked up a pair of drumsticks. But you should hear me play the cello now. It's not pretty. In fact, when I was down in California just this last time, my parents still have my old cello and I pulled it out and put the bow to it and it was... (laughs) It was bad. Saints, keep practicing. Keep practicing. God has produced sainthood in us as a church fellowship. May we be a church fellowship that practices sainthood. May we be then a church fellowship who proclaim Christ from goodwill, out of love, seeking the best for the entire church, rather than those who do it out of selfish ambition and envy and strife. When you come across those who have set down sainthood for envy, they've laid aside holiness for strife or selfish ambition. When you see that, and you will, and it is very present in the church, listen, don't miss this, get Paul's perspective. Verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. (laughs) What? Paul? No, in this you're supposed to be ticked off. In this you're supposed to be the divider. Okay, those guys are preaching from pure motive. Listen to them. Those guys are a bunch of self-righteous prigs. Don't listen to them. That's what, right? We're supposed to rightly divide the word of truth. You've got to understand this. 
Paul did have those who were enemies out there, and he called them out. But here, he's talking about people whose motives are good and bad, and he says, either way, as long as Christ is preached, I'm good with it. What's the difference? Paul talked about those. Acts chapter 20, verse 29. I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Be on the alert, he says. Look out for the wolves in sheep's clothing. Or in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. Beware of the dogs. Not a nice word to use if you're a Jew. Beware of the dogs, he says. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. What's the difference between those he says beware of, but now these are some in Rome. There are some there of the Roman church who know Paul is in prison. And some are out preaching the gospel because they, they know Paul's in prison and they're with him. They're standing with Paul. Others are preaching the gospel because they're thinking they can develop a following here. They now can slide into his position. They have selfish ambition and envy and strife. And this is going on in Rome right now as Paul is imprisoned. And his reaction to that is, praise the Lord Christ is preached. Okay, Paul, I'm confused. What's the difference? Listen, there are those who preach Christ from poor motives. But Christ is preached. That's good. There are churches out there, I won't name any, because we could very quickly be named. There are churches out there that are preaching Christ from poor motives. Selfish ambition, trying to grow their own thing, not looking at the greater body of Christ, the larger church, but looking at their particular brand or denomination or tradition, and they're saying, this is what we're going to fight for, and the motives are not pure. But Christ is preached. Praise the Lord. Christ is preached. If someone gets saved at a church down the road, praise the Lord. They heard the name of Jesus and got saved. Well, yeah, but I didn't get saved here. I don't care. Well, someone left here to go there and, and their friend got saved at that church. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Christ is preached, even if the motives aren't pure. The other, however, is also true. There are those preaching heresy. And those are the ones that Paul says, be on the alert, be aware. He calls them out. If it's heresy, call it out. If it's anti-Christ, stand against it. But if it's just a different flavor, a different approach, an impure motive... Listen, I've been in this business, if you want to call it that, a long time. I've seen a lot of pastors with bad motives saving people. And I don't call them out because people are getting saved. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And that's what Paul's getting at here. If Christ is preached, it doesn't matter what the motives are. Christ is preached. So don't call someone a heretic who's preaching Christ to your distress, as it were. Paul says there are those out there, they're preaching Christ to my distress. They think they're distressing me by carrying on the message without me. By heading to the front of the class. Okay. Praise the Lord, Christ is preached. And then he says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything. 
But with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. And that, my friends, is Paul's true idea of deliverance. What is? Listen again. I will rejoice, for I know this will turn out for my deliverance. What delivers Paul? The preaching of Christ. Paul says, my deliverance is the exaltation of Jesus. To live is Christ. To die is gain. To live is Christ. So if if my life exalts Christ, whether in prison or out, praise the Lord. And if my death exalts Christ, whether in prison or out, hallelujah. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Either way, it's a good deal. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Why don't you say that with me? To live is Christ. To die is gain. One more time with conviction. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Do you believe that? Do you live that? I have heard that. I don't even know. I can't even count the number of times I've heard that verse. Preached, spoken, talked about. To live is Christ. To die is gain. And I say repeat as needed. Like on the shampoo bottle, you know, lather, rinse, repeat. To live is Christ, to die is gain, lather, rinse, repeat. Stay with the phrase. This is what I mean by what I said on Sunday, living Christ. Living Christ means that I say with confidence, if I'm alive, it's for Christ. And if I die, it's for Christ. Either way, it's gain. Either way, it's good. By the way, I never gave you an outline for the letter. Let me do that right now real quickly. Chapter 1 is living Christ. That's the whole focus. That's the whole point. the mentality right now of Paul as he's writing, living Christ. To live as Christ, to die as gain, that is the hinge point of the entire first chapter. That's where he's headed, and that's where he's going to come down from now that we've gotten there. It is the pinnacle of the chapter, living Christ. Chapter 2, Lordship of Christ. The Lordship of Christ in that profound explanation of the Incarnation that we will see uh, next time or or Sunday morning. Living Christ, chapter 1. Chapter 2, the Lordship of Christ. Chapter 3, loss for Christ. Whatever I have gained, I have counted as loss. That's chapter 3 and the entire focus. doesn't matter what I've gained, what I've lost. doesn't matter. It's all rubbish by comparison. That's chapter 3. And then finally, chapter 4, learning Christ. Learning Christ. Whatever is pure, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is excellent. Learning Christ. So living, lordship, loss, and learning. You can break the letter to Philippi down that way because, listen, at its heart, living Christ, the lordship of Christ, the loss for Christ, and learning Christ, at its heart, this letter tells us to live as Christ and to die as gain. And that is at the heart of sainthood, by the way. In fact, that's at the heart of existence. To live as Christ, to die is gain. There is no other reason you exist. I mean, I can be absolutely simple-minded with this. You can say, what about my friends? What about my family? What about my lifestyle? What about the... 
There is no other reason any other human being or you on the planet through all history, there is no other reason we exist to live as Christ, to die as gain. That is our reason for being. We are here to come to that discovery, that realization. And man, when I am banging on all cylinders, and when that verse is is thick in my heart, and I'm in it, and I'm thinking about it, and I'm confident with it, then no matter what happens in my life, I'm in a pretty good mood. And no matter where my life may seem to be heading in terms of physically and the the potentiality of death and loss, (laughs) whatever. Because I know why I'm here, to live as Christ. And I know if my life here should end, to die as gain. It's an amazing, profound, simple, but incredibly powerful statement. It's one of those that I say is almost worth the whole thing. If we could just get that. To live as Christ, to die as gain. There's no other reason you're here. There's no other reason I'm here. We have all kinds of side jobs and side interests. But that's the main thing. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, For us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him, live or die, it's all for Him to live as Christ, to die as gain. What a glorious reality. And that is our reality. Verse 22. But... If I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. I mean, I'm I'm hard-pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. I'm hard-pressed, Paul says. I mean, if it wasn't so profound, I'd be laughing the way he says it. I can live on, and that'll be fruitful labor, or I can die, and that'll be better. And I don't know which one to choose. Anyone else have that mental difficulty? Should I live or die today? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, most of us on the live side are good with that. Oh, live it. I might die. It is rare that I have a day when I'm struggling between the two, just to be honest. I have those days on occasion. Paul says, I am hard-pressed between the two. That word hard-pressed is sunecho. And this means to be pressed upon or to be distressed by or to be constrained. I call it the divine tension. Sunecho. I'm hard-pressed. I'm feeling the tension of it. And the tension that's pulling is I've got this pull to to go on home and be with Christ. Man, I want that. But I have on the other side of the pull, man, to to live on here. And I'm I'm caught between. I'm torn between the two. The word suneko, it's used physically to literally mean being compressed or pressed upon. Luke chapter 8, verse 45. Jesus is in the crowd and the people are all pressing around. And you remember the story of the woman that's been bleeding for 12 years, thinks if I can just touch the hem of his robe, I'll be healed. That's faith. And through the crowd, she gets her hand in there, grabs a hold of the hem, and instantly she's healed. Jesus feels power go out of his body when she touches the hem of his garment. (laughs) 
And the Bible says, Jesus said, when she touches his hem, not his shoulder, not his head, not didn't grab his hand, gets his hem, and he goes, whoa, wait a minute, who touched me? Who touched me? And they're all denying, well, it wasn't me, it was him, I didn't, I, what? They're all pressing in on him. And Peter says, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. Suneco. Same word. Paul says, I'm hard pressed. I got death on the one side pressing, I got life on the other side, I don't know which one to choose. Physically, it just means being pressed. Emotionally, mentally, Jesus used the same word. Luke chapter 12, verse 50, he said, I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. How hard pressed I am. Jesus himself was compressed between the thought of that brutal crucifixion, that intense sacrifice, and his own life and glory. And he's pressed. Suneco. And the same word, I love how the King James translates this verse. We read it, I am uh, I'm hard pressed from both directions, verse 23. And the King James is literally, I am in a strait betwixt the two. We don't use betwixt enough these days. But he says, I'm in a strait. And that's a great translation. Because suneco is used to describe a ship going through a strait, going through a narrow channel. Paul says, that's where I am with this whole life-death thing. I'm in a narrow place. This is how narrow Paul's life had become. People say Christians are narrow-minded. Yes, we are. And in fact, the longer I walk with Christ, the more narrow it gets to where Paul's at this point where he's like, I'm in the straits between life and death. I don't know which one to choose. I'm hard-pressed in between. That's living Christ. That's living Christ. When you are hard-pressed between going home to be with Him or living for Him here, that is living Christ. And by the way, this same word, suneco, is used in another place. And it's a great word. 2 Corinthians 5.14, another familiar verse, says, For the love of Christ controls us. Suneco. The love of Christ compresses us. The love of Christ has us in the straits. You might say the straight and narrow. The love of Christ. See, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And the longer you walk with Jesus, the more simplistic and the more specific and the more narrow that reality becomes for you, that there really is nothing else. That is being a saint. Living Christ. Living Christ always begins as a choice on a wide plane. I choose you, Jesus. And then as you walk, it becomes this holy constraint. The more control I give up, the more control He takes. Now you may be listening to this and going, wow, that sounds a little oppressive. That's the thing that's amazing. The more constrained I am by the love of Christ, the more free I am from the constraints of this world. The more He narrows my focus, the more my entire, even my attitude shifts to where, you know, if you're on a ship and you're going through a narrow channel, you don't really have any choice but just go. Just go, man. 
You're not going to the right, you're not going to the left, you're just going straight forward. And that's it in Jesus. The love of Christ is absolute freedom. His love that that constrains us is liberation from the wide open plain of sin. And that is the terrifying place to be. But to be constrained by Christ, Jesus put it this way. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Freedom, liberty, that is being constrained by the love of God. It's completely opposite what the world would think. Though we are hard-pressed, as Paul says, nothing is more liberating than when Jesus captains this vessel through the straits of life. And I know I'm headed for home. That's what Paul means when he says, I am imprisoned in Christo. It's man. Everything I think about, everything I do, everywhere I'm going, everywhere I am is all about Jesus. And that kind of single-hearted focus, that's where the joy comes from. Remember I said on Sunday morning that marginal Christianity will suck the life out of you? But man, off the charts, in the straits, passionate, single-minded, single-hearted Christianity will fill you with joy and peace and freedom and comfort and encouragement. Living with Christ. Living Christ. Verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Oh, joyful reunion. Paul can't wait to see his friends in Philippi again. I got to get back to Philippi, he thinks. He says, he writes, does he ever get back there? I don't think so. He does, I believe, he was freed from his Roman prison. And as I said before, he went on west. He punches further out into Spain and up into the reaches of Europe there before being captured and retried in Rome and ultimately beheaded. I don't think Paul ever got back to Philippi. But I do believe he saw Philippi again. He saw his Philippian friends. In fact, I would say he's in sweet, joyful fellowship with them right now. This is, to my mind, this is the ultimate joy of fellowship in the faith. And the joy is that whether together or apart, we know we are going to be together. This is the joy of Christian relationship. It will never end. It is promised to continue. Our relationship with Jesus starts here, but will never end. Our relationships with each other begin here, will never end. That's the promise. That's heaven. That's the joy and the glory that is out there before us. It is eternally certain. And one way or another, Paul would indeed be reunited with his friends. Verse 27, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you you, or remain absent, I will hear of you. That you're standing firm in one spirit, 
with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. That is one gospel. And Paul is specific. He doesn't say that you're together and that you are of one spirit and one mind and you know enjoying whatever faith you bring to the table. No, there's one faith. Faith in the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the only faith that will get you into the narrow channel, which is the only way home. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Live Christ. The only way. The one gospel, the good news. In verse 28, he says that you would do so in no way alarmed by opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. Now this is interesting. What he's saying very simply here is that opposition to faith in Jesus, opposition is a sign of destruction and salvation. For those who oppose, it is a sign of destruction. For those who are opposed, it is a sign of salvation. The word sign here is, it's indexis, which is where we get the word index. Index is indexis, indexis in the Greek, and it means it's an indicator. So opposition is an indicator of a person's own destruction if they stand opposed to Jesus. But opposition is also an indicator of salvation for those who are being opposed. That's cool. So next time someone comes up against you, challenges you, attacks you because you're a follower of Jesus, in that moment, realize your salvation has just been indicated. I don't want to hear about that Jesus from you. Oh, thanks. (laughs) What are you saying thank you for? Well, you just confirmed my faith. Thank you. God bless you. Can we do this again? Opposition is proof positive that you are walking with Jesus. But to be in opposition, that's proof positive that you are not. And it is proof that you are en route to destruction. i got to share this with you real quickly. I know we're running long, but do I ever care? Um, Perhaps you read or heard about this. The White House position of Deputy Director of the OMB, that is the Office of Management and Budget, sounds like a very exciting job. This doesn't usually require a theological litmus test. They have hearings. You know, the president says, I want this person in this role, this person in that role, this person in that role. He's got all these jobs that he has to designate. And so uh, President Trump designated Russell Vaught to be the deputy director of the OMB. So they had a hearing, which they always do, and the senators are all gathered around in their, you know, in their, in their seats up there, and the, and the guy's down at the table, and they're asking questions. And, and last week, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders decided to make religion an issue for this guy's hiring or non-hiring. And this is how it went. At the confirmation hearing for Russell Vaught, uh, Bernie Sanders pointed out that Vaught wrote, Vaught is a Christian, And he wrote in a piece for Resurgent Magazine uh, defending his alma mater, Wheaton College. And in this piece, this is what he wrote. He said, quote, Muslims do not simply have a deficient theology. They do not know God because they have rejected Jesus Christ, his son, and they stand condemned. So Bernie Sanders quoted that. And as you can see this on YouTube, and he gets visibly, and he quotes that, and he says, did you write that? 
And Russell Vought, very quietly, peacefully said, well, thank you, Senator, I am a Christian. And because I'm a Christian, my worldview, and he begins to answer, and Bernie Sanders says, I I know you're a Christian, but did you say this? Do you think that Muslims or all people that don't agree with your faith, do you think they stand condemned? And, And he said again, I am a Christian. And Christians believe, I know you! And he really, I mean, you see his face get red and he's, he's burning up. Bernie. He's feeling the burn, you know. And he says, in your judgment, do you think that people who are not Christians are going to be condemned? Vought said, as a Christian, I believe all individuals are made in the image of God and are worthy of dignity and respect regardless of their religious beliefs. I believe that as a Christian, that's how I should treat all individuals. Sanders again says, And do you think your statement, they do not know God because they've rejected Jesus Christ the Son, and they stand condemned, do you think that's respectful of other religions? And Vought replied that he agreed with Wheaton College on the centrality of Jesus Christ for salvation. It was a perfect answer. Still fuming, the Bernster turns toward the chairman and said, Mr. Chairman, this nominee is really not someone this country is supposed to be about. Therefore, I vote no. And I I just, I mean, I'm watching this go on. Seeing the confrontation, the opposition. It's interesting that Bernie Sanders himself changed the language when he asked the question and actually called him Jesus Christ the Son and didn't even realize he had done that. I heard him say that and I went, (laughs) Terrible Bernie, you may be confessing Jesus before you know it. But here's the opposition. And and you know what? Such opposition has existed since Jesus died on the cross. Since He went up on the cross. In Philippi... The pagan element in Philippi literally thought the cross was demeaning. Anyone who died on a cross, that's despicable. I mean, you might think, hey, because Philippi wasn't a strong Jewish area, cool. You can really get the gospel out there. It might be easier because you don't have to contend with, with, with the Jewish faith that preceded it. Au contraire. Now you got the, the heathenism and, and the pagan views and all the multiplicity of gods. And in Philippi, they hear about this Jesus on a cross and to them it's like, are you kidding? Worship a God who was hung up on one of those pathetic sticks? That's disgusting. And Paul notes an opposition was strong in Philippi against the Philippian believers themselves. Paul wrote to Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1.23, We preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block. Difficult because they're trying to work it out. To Gentiles, foolishness. A man on a cross, no way I'm going to believe in that. That's just stupid. And that's the Gentile perspective. And Paul says, But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So all that to say is this. Expect opposition to good news. I think you know that. Because any opposition to the gospel is both proof of your sure footing in the gospel, but it's more than proof. It is a privilege. Verse 29, Paul says, For to you, I love this, to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, 
Not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here, to be in me. You saw it a dozen years ago, when me and Silas got beaten, you know, and thrown into prison. You saw how we just talked about Jesus and what happened because of that. You know now, I'm in chains here in Rome because of the same thing. And you yourselves are starting to experience it there in Philippi. You get the persecution. And Paul would later write to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's the deal. But when that opposition comes, man, it proves that you are on sure ground. And it is a privilege. It is absolutely a privilege. And this is... This is so exciting. If, if you get into the live Christ mindset, to live as Christ, to die as gain, and opposition or persecution or hardship comes, cool. I have just been, Paul says, granted suffering. That word granted is exactly what you're hearing. In fact, it's even more so. Granted is karizomai. Karizomai is from the word charis, Grace. You could read it this way. I have been graciously allowed to suffer. God, by His grace and mercy and love, has added suffering into my life. Thank you, Jesus. I have been graciously given suffering. That's the way Paul viewed it. I'm privileged to be in this position. And Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4.13, To the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. And Jesus Himself said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of Me. Rejoice! Be glad! For your reward in heaven is great in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. To live is Christ. To die is gain. So the apostle would say, live Christ. Live Christ. You know, you can, you can sit down and write 20,000 letters and still just be drudging at the table. Or you can live Christ, which regardless of your circumstances is no drudgery at all. Father, we pray to You. And we thank You for the privilege, first of all, of knowing Jesus. The joy of friendship and relationship that we have been drawn into. We thank You for the privilege of the confidence to be able to say, to live as Christ, to die as gain. And we thank You, Father, for the privilege of suffering. The privilege of opposition. And the privilege, Lord, of hardship. Because in this, it it allows us to be more like Jesus. Suffering for Christ's sake. To live is Christ. And to die is gain. 